Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. And to celebrate, we have an episode chock full of delight for you. We're going to talk to Daniel Goldfarb. He's the executive producer of the new HBO show, All About Julia Child. People watch The French Chef, and whether they made the dishes or not, they got something from her and from being in her presence. And I think she just gives people a lift. Plus, we'll celebrate Independent Bookstore Day with a heap of reading recommendations. But first, we're going to check in with two excellent humans about the week that was. With us this week, we have Sarah Marshall. She's a writer, critic, and host of the podcast You're Wrong About and co-host of the podcast You Are Good. Sarah, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yay, happy to have you. We also have Bridget Todd. She's the host of the podcast There Are No Girls on the Internet and the communications director for Ultraviolet, which is a women's rights group. Bridget, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I just the excitement all around. I just love it. <laughs> okay, so um, I think we're just going to do like one big topic this week, and that is Twitter, because it's a real weird scene at the moment. So Earlier this week, as most people probably know, it was pretty big news. Twitter accepted Tesla CEO and billionaire Elon Musk's bid to buy the platform for $44 billion. Musk has said he is a free speech absolutist, so it's assumed that means less moderation of Twitter. Of course, harassment and misinformation are already pretty big issues on the platform, so this sounds like it could be pretty problematic. Uh, Bridget, this is something that you have been thinking about and talking about a lot this week. You were quoted in a recent Jezebel article that had the headline, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter will probably suck for women. Um, so what do you think? How? What? What are you picturing this looking like? Yeah, I mean, it will probably suck for women. I think that Jezebel headline really <laughs> says it all. And I think, you know, we don't really have to look very far to see how Elon Musk would run Twitter. He spent a good portion of the week uh, driving attacks of one of Twitter's senior leaders, um, a woman of color. And I think mm-hmm. he did that specifically because he knows it's going to be a way to signal to people this is what I'm going to be like when I run Twitter. And it's going to be a way to drive his supporters to harass her. And so I think it's really he's he's making it really clear how he would run Twitter. So and essentially, that is just like more and more trolling. It sounds like I mean, if he's actually trolling people, then it's like, okay, great. So this is just what we're going to see forever then, huh? Absolutely. More trolling, more bad faith attacks, more pylons, just making Twitter a less hospitable place to be around and a a place where it's more difficult to have authentic, thoughtful conversations that can actually move us forward on these big issues that we know we have facing our country. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah, what do you think? I mean, you spend a fair amount of time on the Twitters. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's very evident (laughs) that I do to anyone who, who takes a look at my timeline and also the hours I am on. 
Um, for example, learning about King's Hand at four in the morning. That was a great Twitter <laughs> moment for me. Yeah, I think of Twitter as my workplace, really, because and I think this is true for a lot of people. Um it is, especially in the last two years, the place where I am able to go not just to promote my own work and to try and find listeners and to build an audience for the work that I do, which is what it's been important to me for for the past few years. But also, you know, it's we all love to complain about Twitter. I feel like that's one of the pastimes of Twitter. But I feel like this acquisition is making us reflect on what it actually has been able to offer us and what we're afraid of going away. And for me, one of those things is that it's a place where I can actually communicate with people throughout the day and can see perspectives that inform my work and change my mind. Yeah, I think there's also like, obviously, yes, harassment is a huge issue. But I mean, the the potential connection to be had there, too. I mean, the fact that like, after this conversation, we can all follow each other. And then, you know, like, there is that <laughs> yeah. which I think is can be really like, I have friends in real life that I have met on Twitter is like stupid as that sounds, you know, but I think that's, at the end of the day, that's one of the things that is worth preserving about it and that feels true, you know, still from the live journal and fanfiction.net days, which I still have friends from as well 20 years later. Yeah, the idea that it can isolate us just as much as it can connect us. It's just about kind of what we do with it. And I think arguably mm-hmm. also who's in charge of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, Sarah, like people literally call Twitter a hell site already, right? Um, Bridget, I'm curious, like, what are you, is this the last straw for you? Are you... Have you thought about leaving or are you, you know, thinking that you can kind of like staying there and trying to make it as good as it can be despite overlords is important? Yeah, this is the question, right? Like this is the question I have been wrestling with thinking about this whole week is, you know, I I don't begrudge anybody who says I don't want to be a part of a platform that is run by somebody who I think is, you know, like Elon Musk, who, who, who is not someone who is interested in fostering, you know, a safe, inclusive space for marginalized people. I don't begrudge anybody mm-hmm. who says that. But right. I do think, you know, a big part of how we show up online and, you know, by we, I mean people who are traditionally marginalized is making a way out of no way. And so it's not like Twitter was this place that was oh, really welcoming and, you know, uh, inclusive of marginalized voices before, but still we showed up there and, and, and found these ways to carve out what we needed to, that platform to be for us. We created things like Black Twitter, Black Lives Matter, uh, Me Too, using platforms like Twitter, even when they weren't super hospitable t- toward us. And so I do think that people who want to leave the site, that is, I, I'm, I don't begrudge anybody making that choice. But I also think there is something to be said for the way that we as communities always can use these platforms to get what we need from uh, from them, whether that's community, like you and Sarah were just saying, whether that's building up a, a movement or a social change. I think that that's something that we've always had to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. It makes me think of there's a Washington Post op-ed from this week, and the headline was, Leaving Twitter is the new moving to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've been thinking about a lot, partly because, like, I was really annoyed by people who said they wanted to move to Canada because it's like, no, we have to stay and fix this. Like, this is on all of us to make better, you know. 
But I think that puts so much pressure on so many individuals who actually don't have that much of a say at the same time, you know? Mm. Totally. And I also think, you know, is it really going to be helpful if everybody who is thoughtful and interested in, in, in having thoughtful, substantive connections and conversations what is it going to mean if all of those people leave and the only people left are trolls and bad actors? That's that's probably not good either. Right. So, Sarah, have you thought about leaving at all or are you just going <laughs> to ride this one out? I mean, I have been instructed by my therapist to take a break from Twitter and I'm currently flouting that. Um, <laughs> so other people are invested in this as well. It's like an ongoing struggle. I mean, I think where I'm at, where I was at before was... Before this acquisition, I was like, well, Twitter seems to be not great for me. I need to, if not take a long break from it, at least limit my access to it. And now I feel as if in defiance, I need to be more on Twitter than ever. (laughs) Because I feel like, I mean, the stuff about it that makes it a hell site is evident to me and always has been. But I think I my experience of it has always had a toehold over on the side of positive. And it's often been a very good place for me. And I think that, you know, if it's not uh, awful for me to be on there, which it at this time isn't, I feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just a way for me to create an excuse to not get any real writing done, but I have not yet begun to be on Twitter. (laughs) I mean, there's that too. I don't know. It's been really interesting thinking about this and kind of comparing it to like the Spotify conversation that happened earlier this year and people who were talking about leaving that, even though, I mean, obviously Spotify is just fine. But one thing I was thinking about with Spotify is like, you know, there are literally what, like probably half a dozen other things that do pretty much the same exact thing, right? Like it, it seems easier Mm -hmm. to abandon that service on principle because there's something obvious that could take its place. But like, I mean, that's not really the case with Twitter, right? Like, Bridget, have you thought about that part? Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, I think that Twitter is a particular kind of platform that really just functions in a totally different way than other comparable social media platforms like TikTok or right. Instagram or Facebook. It's not surprising why when people, when platforms were deplatforming Trump, the one that he was the most bent out of shape about was Twitter, right? Because the way that you can get news out to everybody, disseminate your message so quickly and have people respond in real time and amplify it in real time, it's unmatched on other platforms. And so I think with that power that I think we all see that Twitter has really comes with a lot of responsibility that I hope that the higher ups and the suits at Twitter really recognize and can reckon with when they're making decisions. Yeah, no kidding. So one thing I was curious about, this is like kind of a stupid question, but I think it's a fun one, is uh, if you hadn't been on Twitter this week, what's something that you would have missed, that you would have been sad to have missed? Like I was thinking, I don't know if y'all saw this one that went viral, but like somebody somewhere made a step and repeat like a red carpet photo thing for birds. (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) Like the squirrel would come in and I don't know. I just thought it was delightful. Is there anything just like super random and fun that you came across this week that's that's worth mentioning at this moment in time, Sarah? I mean, this is just a a tweet that I saw when I opened it up this morning. This is by Robert Schultz. A guy my age was telling me how happy he was that his wife just gave birth to their fourth child then was like, sorry, don't mean to brag. And it's like, no worries. Your life literally sounds terrible to me. (laughs) (laughs) And if you have four kids, I'm so happy for you and I'm happy that you're happy. But also I think, you know, this has at this moment (laughs) 289,000 likes. And one of the nice things about Twitter has always been, I think what used to be great about Tumblr is that people just kind of tweet out 
their thoughts, and then you will have a random observation by a small account do numbers, and you're like, okay, a lot of us are are not feeling a lack because we don't have kids in our lives. And just the, the ability to see each other, even on that scale, I guess, love. Yeah, that's a really good point. Bridget, what do you think? Oh my gosh, mine fits so nicely with what Sarah was just explaining. And this was the concept that I had never heard of, but as soon as I saw it, I thought, thank God other people are experiencing this. The concept of goblin mode. Have y'all heard about this? No. (laughs) I love this. So goblin mode is a phrase for when you are just like having a weekend where you're going to intentionally wear your nastiest sweatpants and eat a Papa John's pizza (laughs) and watch the grossest reality TV. You're going goblin mode. I love it. It's so good to have a phrase to retroactively describe, you know, the last two years years of my life. Yeah, exactly. Spent a few years in goblin mode. I like it. (laughs) Goblin mode. That's amazing. You're in the Goblin City with Kareth. (laughs) One of my favorites from this week, too, was from Brittany Van Horn. A friend sent me this. She wrote, if we want to raise the money to buy Twitter back and put it in the hands of the people, we're going to have to put on the greatest talent show this town's ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bridget, Sarah, thank you both so much. This was very fun. Oh, thank you all so much. My pleasure. It was super fun. Now it is time for some Julia Child appreciation. Her show, The French Chef, debuted on public television in July of 1962. That means it came out almost exactly 60 years ago. And Julia is as delightful as ever. Julia Child presents the Chicken Sisters. Miss Broiler, Miss Fryer, Miss Roaster, Miss Capernet, Miss Stewart, and old Madam Hen. For television writer and producer Daniel Goldfarb, the thing that still resonates with people 60 years later isn't actually Julia's food. It's more about her outlook. She just lived her life with joy. She was a real sensualist. Food, sex, wine. Daniel's new show is called Julia. It's on HBO and it stars Sarah Lancashire and David Hyde Pierce. It is all about the early moments of Julia's TV career and what made Julia, Julia. She took great delight in what she was passionate about. And I think people watched The French Chef and whether they made the dishes or not, they got something from her and from being in her presence. And I think she just gives people a lift. The one thing I think a lot of people are just so scared of any recipe they see that says sugar syrup or caramel. And they no, I won't do anything like that. And that is, I think, this is one of this, this awful American syndrome of fear of failure. And if you're going to have a sense of fear of failure, you're just never going to learn how to cook because cooking is... Lots of it is one failure after another, and that's how you finally learn. For instance, you've got to have developed what the French call je m'en foutisme, or I don't care what happens, I can fall and omelets can go over all over the stove. I'm going to learn. I just <laughs> love her so much. Like, even in those 40 seconds or whatever, it's just like, what a perfect human, you know? Yeah, and she's like kind of winded and overwhelmed. <laughs> and it just makes you, again, like there's nothing slick about her. Uh, it's mm-hmm. that, you know, food television today has gotten so slick and so perfect. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, 
and there's something and what and she she practiced what she preached like you can watch yeah. multiple episodes of the french chef and things go wrong and that's part of the fun <laughs> of watching well that didn't go very well see when i flipped it i didn't i didn't have the courage to do it the way i should have but you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen who is going to see but the only way you learn how to flip things is just to flip them there's just something so unfussy about her that I think, especially when, it, you know, because often when you think of French cooking or, you know, even just French culture, it is like so much more buttoned up, you know, mm-hmm. but she's just like, I think you really captured that in the show beautifully, too. She's just sort of like, well, we're just here doing this thing. You know, it's just so much fun to watch. Oh, thank you. There was another thing that I think kind of speaks to what you were talking about, about her, like her, her the way she embraced pleasure And it was really fun to see that come across in the show, too, because there are so many different moments where she's, you know, sitting on a porch drinking a cocktail or telling a friend that she needs to dip the butter, the lobster in the butter more to really appreciate the lobster that like, I just think that really comes across really beautifully, too. All that drawn butter is criminally good. (laughs) I get it. A more liberal dipping will really bring out the sweetness of the lobster meat. Hello, me. There's more flesh in there if you're willing to suck it out. And that's all very true. I mean, if you read in um, in My Time in France, which is the which is the closest thing she has to an autobiography as opposed to a biography, mm-hmm. you know, she talks about these sort of like hedonist meals that she and Paul would have, and they would eat too much and drink too much, and it would take them like three days to recover. <laughs> and they would like they would literally be sick and vomiting the next day. And then as soon as they were better, they would just do it again. <laughs> you know, there was no sense of like, oh, maybe moderation. They were they were real pleasure seekers. And it's really fun to and 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 again, and also they were pleasures, you know, Julia found her footing later in life. She met Paul yeah. when she was in her mid-30s and and, you know, she was famously, uh, she was still a virgin. She didn't know how to cook. And so all of this came to her, you know, at the beginning of the middle, uh, as a, you know, and, and I think that, again, made her just like lean into it and appreciate it all the more. Oh, it's so great. So, you know, this isn't the first thing about Julia to come out, obviously, right? I think about, you know, the movie with Meryl Streep about 10 years ago or even the documentary last year. What was something about Julia that you felt like maybe wasn't captured in those things that you wanted to really make sure that you were getting across in this series? I love this period of time and I love the idea of a second act. Um, so for me, it was sort of exploring her um, inventing something, basically inventing food television as we know it and doing it kind of learning from her mistakes and figuring it out at 50 years old they do feel like there's a fair amount of time in this show spent like massaging male egos <laughs> and, you know, just kind of navigating like, you know, the the whole idea. And I, she does this with Paul, right, where she sort of like convinces him that it's his idea for her to do this as opposed to the thing she wants to do. I think it's fascinating. Do you know, like, how much of that was blanks that you were kind of filling in versus true to life? Do we even know that? So... I think it's a, it's a mix of both. And, but I stand by the blanks, (laughs) you know, 
Because <laughs> we do know that she wrote the letter to GBH with the proposal. And we do know that Paul hated television and they didn't own a television until she had her own show. And we do know that they came back to Boston a little bit unhappily. Uh, so all of those things are true. So knowing that Paul was a little bit of a snob about television and, you know, really believed in the book and really believed in books and literature over TV hmm. and knowing that he was in a kind of vulnerable place, it felt like we could invent that she wrote the letter behind Paul's back. And then that Paul, I, we could also invent that he doesn't think it's a good idea because I, I believe that he probably wouldn't have thought it was a good idea because now, of course, 60 years later, we sure. still watch The French Chef. But you know, WGBH was a tiny, tiny, like, it's like, we're talking, you know, I've been reading is like between two ferns. Like, this is very low <laughs> state. You know, no one, I don't think they had any sense of what they were doing, that they, that one day there would be a whole network based on the discoveries that they made doing this tiny little show on local, on a local public television station in Boston. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of another clip we have where Julia is trying to convince a producer from WGBH who uh, whose name is Russ. He's played by Fran Krantz to carry her cooking show. And she has made him some pate. Let me cut to the chase, Mrs. Child. Oh, Julia. Please. Julia, I appreciate this. I do. But you have to understand that I am not a frivolous person. I may be in the television industry, but public television is not television television. It's not entertainment. I am not an entertainer. I'm not entertaining. Completely. Sherry. Now, you, I, I understand you feel that what you do has substance, and maybe to some ladies it means it does, but public television is on a much larger journey. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, you see, I want to change the way people think, the way they see, the way they live their lives. But so do I. But how can food possibly do that? That's really very good. Thank you. <laughs> There's just so much charm to it. The music, all of it. I just love it so much. That's one of my favorites. That was actually, you know, because in the pilot, Russ doesn't have a big scene with Julia. He's always with other guys. So we wrote that mm -hmm. scene or I wrote that scene as a, as an audition scene for the guys who are auditioning to play Russ. And then oh, cool. and it, it played so well in all the auditions and Fran, you know, in particular uh, nailed it, obviously. And he's our Russ that we we had to figure out how to get it in the show. So it felt like a real uh, perfect fit. And it feels very true if you think about what uh, public educational television was in the early 60s. And by the 70s, public television is defined by Julia, by Mr. Rogers, by Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. So it really changed into something that uh, no one could have anticipated, or at least those guys couldn't have anticipated. Right, right. Well, yeah, those guys, obviously, they couldn't <laughs> anticipate it. There's another really fun scene from the first episode where Julia's on the phone with her cookbook co-author and they're they're working out these issues of a recipe that the co-author kind of wrote and Julia like keeps fucking it up and is very frustrated by it. Uh, let's listen. Make it again. I will make it again. I'll make it a hundred times until I get it exactly right. It's only one recipe, ma chérie. Oh, it's not one recipe, ma chérie. And I'm starting to lose my patience with your unwillingness to see that. Imbécile. Fuck a duck. 
Did she really curse that much? I mean, there's a fair number of F-bombs that we have Julia dropping in this show. She did curse. I mean, I don't know uh, yet. I mean, and, and, and <laughs> that actually is, there's even an article out right now about that Julia Child did curse. Uh, there's like a famous huh? in the letter, uh, it's in the movie where she talks about handling penne as like a hot cock in her hand. That's <laughs> something that's in the that's in the Meryl Streep movie. But yes, I mean, she was known to, to have a, a salty tongue. Ugh. I imagine as part of the prep you did for this show, you like made some recipes and worked through the, her books a little. Do you have any favorites? The, the, the one that is like the favorite favorite is her crepes. I actually bake her crepes mm. almost every weekend now. I have two daughters. And um, so that's sort of the thing, like the Saturday morning thing. They sleep in and I make crepes and it's easy. I know it by heart now. And it's just become part of our repertoire. I love that. And that's pretty straightforward, probably, right? It's like eggs, flour, milk. Yeah. Uh, eggs, flour, milk, water, sugar, um, and only egg yolks and a lot of butter. Oh, so half a stick of butter, three <laughs> egg yolks. Yeah. I mean, they're rich. I feel like with any recipe, but probably especially Julia Child stuff, though, like you just can't do the butter math. You know what I mean? Like the like how many tablespoons? It's like, no, nope, just don't. Just yeah, go with it. It. But, but <laughs> it's it is interesting. Be- like, you know, our the way we eat has changed so much since Julia's book. Like, obviously, she uses a lot of fats and a lot of butter and a lot of cream. But she doesn't use a ton of salt. Like, I think we're now used to eating mm-hmm. saltier food than they were back then. And even with like herbs and spices, she's, you know, they're all sort of on the lighter side, you know, as opposed to like the barefoot Contessa, who's like, you know, a cup of fresh parsley. And like <laughs> she uses a lot of salt and a lot of herbs and a lot of like big flavors. The Julia recipes are kind of subtler um, for what the way the American palate has kind of changed since she broke through. I mean, even some of the late, like from Julia Child's Kitchen, which came out, I think, in 1976, that was the first cookbook she wrote without Simca. Um, And even that is like the beginnings of what we think of now as like new American cooking, where she started using not just French herbs and spices, but more, you know, quote unquote, international flavors and and techniques. And, you know, she she really, in a way, she kept changing and growing and became sort of more global in her thinking in terms of uh, her palate. Yeah, I mean, I love that you used the word pleasure earlier, because I feel like it's a pleasure to watch. You can tell she loves pleasure. And yeah, it was it was a pleasure to talk with you, too. So thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. I really appreciate it. In just a minute, a million ideas for your TBR in honor of Independent Bookstore Day. Okay, not a million, but still like a whole bunch, a solid handful. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. As I mentioned, Saturday, April 30th is Independent Bookstore Day, which means it is the perfect time to get a bunch of ideas for books to get on this auspicious holiday. We put out the call for raves and y'all showed up. 
Hi, Nerdette. This is Jen calling in from Minneapolis. Hey, Nerdette. This is Kali from Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Kathleen, a bookseller from the bookstall in sunny Winnetka, Illinois. Hi, Nerdette. This is Annalisa calling from Bedford, Massachusetts. So about a year ago, I read The Lost Queen by Sigmy Pike, um, and I haven't stopped thinking about this book. It's historical fiction. It takes place in Scotland in the 6th century. It's just such a good read. It has everything you might want. It's got Celtic lore, possibly Merlins in this story. There's a love story, strong female protagonist. The third book is coming out in fall of 2023, which I am so excited about. Um, I just can't recommend this book enough. One book that I loved recently that I'd recommend to Nerdette listeners is The No Show by Beth O'Leary. Don't be fooled by its cover. It's giving rom-com vibes, but it's definitely more bittersweet than zany hilarious. I won't give away too much because I think it is one of those books that's better going into it without knowing too much, but the basic premise is that three women get stood up on Valentine's Day by the same man. The narrative switch between these women and you get to know them, you get to love them, you get to root for them. It did leave me weepy at the end. A lot weepy at the end but also hopeful and a little swoony. Hey, my name is Sarah, and I'm the co-owner of Women and Children Fest in Chicago, and I want to recommend Easy Beauty, a memoir by Chloe Cooper Jones. This book is more than just my favorite. It is my book. It made me feel ecstatically tingly in the same way I feel when I hear those opening chords of my song. This memoir is so many things. Jones is disabled, but beyond a phenomenal memoir by a disabled mother, it is also a gorgeous travel log and a philosophy 101. I want all of you to read more books by disabled authors, and I want you to start with this one. I am calling to recommend The Final Revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. It came out last year. It's fiction, but it reads very much like a true story of a rock duo from the 70s who come from very different backgrounds and have a very tumultuous and brief career together, and then their lives go in very different directions. I definitely got the feeling while reading it of nostalgia for something that doesn't exist, because I, I kept wanting to look up YouTube recordings of um, of this group, and they're not they're not real people. Um, but that's how good this is, and that's how um, that's how highly I recommend it. Hi, Nerdette. This is Ashley from Mundelein, Illinois. I recently read the book Sellout: The Major Label Feeding Frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore from 1994 to 2007 by Dan Ozzy, and I loved it. This is a book that tells the story of 11 bands and what happens when they make the jump from an indie label to a major label. Um, You don't have to be super familiar with all of the bands that are in the book, which I liked, so I highly recommend it, especially if you like to nerd out over those types of music. Highly recommend. Hey, Nerdette, this is Ava. A book series I would like to recommend is the Raira Revelation series by Michael J. Sullivan. The first book, Theft of Swords, focus on the two main characters, Royce and Hadrian. They get framed for the murder of the king and then get tied up in a much bigger conspiracy. I love this world, I love the characters, I love the author, and I hope you do too. These days, I am recommending an Irish book by author Billy O'Callaghan. It's called Life Sentences. 
It's an unforgettable tale of love, abandonment, hunger, and redemption. It's a lyrical family saga of an Irish family determined against all odds to be free. It's profound. It would be a great book club book. And I have to say, I loved it. I would like to rave about the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. This book is by Honoré Fanon Jeffers. It's pretty hefty. It's over 750 pages long. And if it's possible, it is a quick read, but a slow burn at the same time, because the story is so encompassing that you get sucked into it. And the next thing you know, you are 500 pages in, 600 pages in, and so on. It has so many layers. It is an epic, and I jokingly tell my friends this all the time, but not really joking. It's the book that I've been waiting to read my whole life. I would like to recommend The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. I just recently read this book and found it really delightful. I couldn't put it down. I wanted to know what happened to all these um, delightful and sweet children that were just a little bit different and just a little bit like every other kid. I hope everyone picks us up at their local independent bookshop. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. 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 Hope you have a great day. What a great variety of books. If you want to see if an indie bookstore near you is celebrating Independent Bookstore Day, I would say bets are good that yes, but you can check out IndieBound.org to make sure. And of course, if you missed the actual holiday, don't worry. Every day it can be Independent Bookstore Day in your nerdy little book-loving heart. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks to Ava and Sarah and Annalisa and Polly and Ashley and Maggie and Kathleen and Emily and Jen for sending in such great book recommendations. It was so great to hear from all of you. And thanks to the rest of you for listening along. If you do pick up something fun at a bookstore this weekend, tag us. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nerdette Podcast. We would love to see what you get. You could also post a picture over in our Facebook group. Just search for Nerdette Headquarters. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. The lovely Maggie Civet builds our newsletter each week. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you in May. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.